Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. For me, it's the ultimate challenge and, and the biggest biggest thing you can do as a, as a time trialist. So, um, yeah, I'm fascinated by it for a very long time already. Actually, an hour is not really that long. If you suffer for an hour, then you've definitely put the start very, very wrong. Hello, and welcome to Faster, the Dr. Hutch podcast supported by Cycling Weekly. I'm Michael Hutchinson, and I'm a former pro road rider and national time trial champion. You just heard from Ellen Van Dyke and Joss Loudon, current and former R record holders, because this time we're talking about the most hallowed, historic and potentially horrible ways a bike rider can spend 60 minutes. It's the R record. I didn't feel really completely shattered after the hour. I mean, of course, uh, of course, this was it and I couldn't go faster. But um, yeah, to be honest, I expected it worse. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So, uh, I mean, the last 15 minutes, not so much, but the whole process was, was amazing. I'll be talking to Victor Campenarts, the holder of the current men's record, Alan Van Dyke, who holds the current women's record, Joss Loudon, who set the record that Alan Van Dyke broke, Alex Dyset, former record holder, and Molly Van Harling, another former record holder. The R record is just brutal in its simplicity. How far can you ride, on a track, on your own, in one hour? There are no tactics, there are no teammates. There is nowhere to hide and the outcome is black and white. You succeed or you fail. The R has a pivotal place in bike racing for a simple reason. It's the only record. Or at least it's the only record that goes beyond the four minutes or so of a four kilometer pursuit. Pro racing has never had time trial records because the distances aren't standardised and even if they were, the courses are always different. In an elite time trial, the challenge is limited to one day and to one race. That means for an elite rider, an hour record on the track is the only way to leave a permanent record of what you can do in absolute physical terms. It's the only way to compare one generation to the previous one. It's cycling's solitary role of honour. And as you'd expect, that role of honour is quite the list. The men's record includes the Campionissimo himself, Fausto Coppi, who rode 45.8 kilometres in Milan during the Second World War, immediately before he was conscripted into the army and sent to North Africa. It includes Jacques Anquetil, who broke Coppi's record in 1956, and later had a second ride ruled out for a doping offence in 1967. It includes Eddie Merckx, who took the record to over 49 kilometres in the thin air of Mexico City in 1972. It includes Francesca Moser, Chris Boardman, Graham Abrey and Bradley Wiggins. 
The women's list is a little shorter because the women's record is more than 50 years younger. It includes two-time world champion Katie Van Ostend, who rode 43 kilometres in 1972. And it very much includes Jenny Longo, who set six records in total between 1986 and 2000, with a best distance of just over 48 kilometres. And it includes Leontan Zelard van Morsel, the multiple Olympic champion, who broke the record in 2000. The R is a record of cycling, how it's changed, how it's progressed, and who changed it. And it's been a very big part of cycling in the last eight years. That's because in 2014, the UCI changed the rules. Or rather, the UCI changed the rules back. For 14 years before that, between 2000 and 2014, the governing body had required the R be attempted only on round-tubed, dropped handlebar track bikes with wire-spoked wheels. It was basically an attempt to lock the R record in the technology of 1972, when Merck set his record, so that everyone would be measured against him alone. That idea was known as the Athletes R record. Everybody hated it, it was a very stupid idea, and it all but killed the event. But since the rules returned to normal in 2014, we've seen 24 attempts on the men's record and 9 on the women's, which is more than we had in the previous half century. This is a golden age of the R. She's leading the current record by a minute. That's a fairly good margin. So what makes someone take on a monument like this? I asked some of those who did. Let's start with Alan Van Dyke. It is actually about a kilometre quicker. So that um, is about four laps. Easy translation. The world hour record is, is the only record in cycling, which is, which is measured, I mean, next to track cycling, but for, for road cycling. And it's something you can compare over the years even. And I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm much better than somebody who had it years ago, because of course, uh, equipment changes and, and, uh, and other things. Uh, but it's something that you can really see evolving over the years. And um, yeah, this whole history is fascinating. And, and uh, yeah, to be part of that was, uh, was a big dream of mine. For me, it's up to uh, everyone what you, what you like to do. But for me, it's, uh, yeah, like I say, the ultimate thing. If you're a world champion and then you can, you can see, it's not just to prove or whatever, it's just to see what's inside myself. Like how far can I get in one hour, this whole challenge? Uh, yeah, for me, it really has been the, the best project of my cycling career by far. I still remember my very first one. During the first half hour, I was literally thinking, I don't know what Eddie Merckx was talking about. The second half hour, I was thinking, now I know what Eddie Merckx was talking about. This is Molly Van Harling. Molly has ridden at least eight hour attempts since 2015 and has held both the world record and, more recently, the age group records. She's talking about what Eddie Merck said after he set his record, which was that it had meant suffering as he had never suffered before. The effort was permanent and intense, he said. It was the longest hour of my career. He later said that he thought the hour had taken years off his life. It definitely adds up, and it also depends. Like any time trial, um, pacing mistakes, can make the experience extremely painful. And I think my, my most painful experiences have been, um, I remember in particular my attempt in February of 2015 when I did extend my own record, but I did not pace it well and um, was just falling off the pace starting 15 minutes in. And the sad thing is 
it keeps getting harder and you keep going slower. And of course you're on the track and with one gear and I ride a pretty heavy gear. And of course it just gets heavier and heavier as your leg speed goes down and down. Um, and so that was extremely painful. And, and then, you know, there, I have had some experiences where the pacing was good and everything came together on the day. And um, in those experiences, it's still, I tried to empty the tank in the last few minutes, making that painful, but, um, but that you can suffer through. It's the ones where it's 45 minutes of regret. I did not have the proper hour record experience first time around. I spent the hour waiting for it to bite, waiting to get that bad patch. This is Alex Dowsett, who broke the record in Manchester in 2015 when he rode just under 53 kilometers. He attempted it again in November 2021 in Aguas Calientes in Mexico. Waiting for all the, all the stories of pain that people talk about to hit and yeah first five minutes to go I was still like can I can I go can I like go now because this is this has been a high zone three ride such was our preparation and such was the um the marker that we had to beat um I mean, such was the time the timing of it like that was um the way it goes and, and I think that's what made me so keen to go back is I've said it many times it was the fact that we'd worked so hard and I hadn't actually gone as far as I could have done and so yeah Mexico served as a purpose to find out how far I can go definitely my best experiences I think have taken advantage of the fact that I was experienced so I, I think my best experience was probably my most recent attempt in Aguas Calientes, where I felt, I felt ready and I felt like all I needed to do was execute. And what that mainly meant was holding back and not overpacing. And that that, in fact, would make it both relatively comfortable and successful. All that experience does not stop me from sometimes getting ambitious and thinking, oh, maybe all these improvements we just made will let me go you know, at UCI record pace. So I still try that occasionally and it's usually extremely painful and some, and, usually, and yes, uh, typically a failure. Um, and, and I do think the experiences that, um, I don't want to say they haunt me, but make me still a little nervous uh, going into things. Um, that one in February of 2015, where I overcooked it and then was suffering from 15 minutes in, that was quite painful. Um, and then Rob mentioned already a relatively successful attempt where I, th I think I did extend my own. The Rob that record, Molly refers to is her I husband, who was an essential part of her R record team. We had some issues with the sound and his connection, which is why we don't hear from him directly. Sorry about that, Rob right after I crossed the line, I crashed on my face. And I think I was just fall, like falling apart. I, I don't know if I like lost consciousness or I think I really just lost concentration um, because I was so exhausted. And that wasn't, I mean, that's not a great memory to have lodged in 
one's head when you're pushing, you know, in every attempt, you're pushing to the limits of your, of keeping it together. I work with the sport psychologist of our team also, uh, Elisabeth Borgia. And um, yeah, we spoke a lot about my, my, my internal dialogue in training and what I was expecting from it, what I, I, I wanted to break the hour in parts. And uh, I tried a lot of different strategies to think, to what to think about during this hour, because in the beginning I was only thinking, okay, five minutes down, 55 to go, you know, and that's not, that's not working. I can tell you. So yeah, I had to keep my mind, keep my mind somehow off the time. And, um, uh, yeah, we tried different things. Um, uh, yeah, for example, just try to visualize something which I do, uh, many times or just try to think about completely something else. Uh, so, so, so when you say think about something you do many times, what, 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 like what? Uh, well, I train always on the dike here. For example, I know this dike, uh, like I can ride it blindly. Just try, just pretend you're on the dike. We see where you're going. Three left. Just something stupid, which maybe distracts you from only riding, looking down and seeing nothing and thinking about time. So at one point I was just um, imagining myself uh, sitting in my house, like making my own little place and then uh, inviting people over, which I like to my house. Like uh, my parents came by and then I, I tried to imagine what they would say, what they would act. And then my nephew would come by and my niece and just, I don't know, just to think about people that I like and uh, just to have something stupid going on in my head, which is not about uh, time and, and, and pain or whatever. Yeah, so it's it's I suppose dissociative thinking is what uh, is is how people explain it. It's the idea of taking yourself to somewhere different. Yeah. Yeah, no, but also I tried the other strategy just to really go to the pain, you know, because you know you're gonna have pain and you need to embrace it. And this works for me as well. Like if I if I feel pain somewhere, I try to really start focusing and concentrating on it and and then starting to think like this is what i need this is what 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 i need to go fast if i don't feel it it's not good enough so um yeah trying to be happy with the pain or comfortable find a comfortable way in it yeah Ellen touched on some of the psychological strategy for riding an hour there. And for such a simple event, ride your bike for an hour and see how far you go, there is an incredible amount of detail that goes into an attempt. Here are our riders talking about how they set about the event, starting with Ellen. I asked her how she prepared for the hour, especially given that the women's pro peloton almost never does time trials of more than 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, I never did an hour. I think uh, longest time trials are around 40 minutes, uh, 35, 40 minutes. So it's also something I had to uh, get used to in training, not just to uh, to the... I mean, I can ride for one hour maximum because that's what you do on the road as well. But to stay in this position without any uh, corner or anything, that was something I, I definitely had to train, yeah. Um, when did you start actually preparing for the hour i mean because you announced it relative you didn't announce it very long before you did it it was really just a few weeks but when did you actually start putting this whole project together 
So we started planning in December, uh, or we started the first conversations in December, but then for sure the bike had to be made, a lot of things had to be arranged. Um, and also I was uh, riding the whole spring campaign. So uh, to be honest, until um, the last spring classic I rode, which was Flash for Loan, I only rode twice on the track, I think. And then, uh, yeah, so then we had four weeks of, uh, of a very intense preparation, but um, yeah, and I had to learn a lot of things, I have to say, even though I have been a track cyclist before, so I knew some things already, but a lot of things were new to me. And also I had a lot of uncertainties in the beginning, I have to say, uh, but yeah, towards the end of the four weeks, everything uh, got into place and uh, was just enough, I think. I think the real frustrating thing is that you, you know it. And it's for us, it was like, wow. It's so close, like one more month of work, maybe a couple more wind tunnel sessions like a month. If we stayed in Mexico for a month, like we could break it in a month's time and pick or just the beauty of having a choice on your day for air pressure, just that alone. But unfortunately, that's not that's not the way it works. And, it's, and the fact that organizing it was far more difficult than actually doing it. Something that made Alex's second attempt in Mexico rather unusual for a world tour rider was that it was he and his partner Chanel who organised the event rather than his team. It was something that added a layer of complication and in some ways it restricted how much preparation he could actually do. Yeah, once we finished it was like, oh, so close, so far, so close, but so far away from being able to attempt another one. Like what I understood um, is that Alex... uh, wanted to uh, replicate my my lap times this is victor campanart and i knew like i was um uh 100 sure especially with the whole preparation that i was going to break Vigo's record and it was never an issue to um uh, to think about Vigo's lap times we set it the lap times ourselves and we also knew we had some you know some margin so indeed yeah i think when you know every lap, it's a battle to write this uh, this lap time, and you cannot afford to do one lap too slow. Uh, of course, that's a, a totally different uh, approach. Let's say the biggest focus was to write, um, to be able to do this uh, very long intervals in the time trial position and still feel comfortable in, in the shoulders and in the breathing. And then afterwards, I did uh, Tireno Adriatico, and every single corner in Tireno Adriatico, I lost the wheel of the rider in front of me. Every single corner. Um, but I, I won the I won the final time trial. But in the in the just the normal race, every decent, every hairpin, I lost the wheel in front of me, just because I I had not the. Also, I was for such a long time on altitude, so you you lose a little bit of muscle. Um, you know, you're not able to um, how you say to send the signals, or you can send the signals to all the muscles, but you won't use them all.
I didn't write the perfect lines, that's, that's clear, but um, I also made uh, the calculation, or not the calculations, but I thought, yeah, I better uh, be more arrow and write more meters than be less arrow and, and write the perfect line. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a commitment I, I made. And um, yeah, just by, I mean, I had a lot of sessions. I had uh, quite often, I had two track sessions a day, which was mentally quite hard. Uh, especially because it needed so much focus to stay on this line and to stay in this position. Um, but yeah, in the end, um, yeah, I think that really helped. And I mean, towards the end, it was going much better <laughs> in the beginning, luckily. <laughs> no, I think um, I wrote a piece about your R for a magazine this week, which is out next week. And I said, oh, cool. I, I, I couldn't think, and anybody else who'd done the R who at any point would have been able to just about see the blue line and the uh, edge yeah. of their vision. Well, but, I, uh, but so, it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, but I also watched uh, Dan Bigham, which you know, obviously, and he is even more amazing. So he was an inspiration for me as well in that yeah. position. <laughs> You, you did um, I mean, you did kind of a full hour June neck of the woods sometime, was it? A couple February. of months before, any? Fair, was it that long ago? Okay, mm-hmm. you, you did a full hour sort of five or six months before then. Yeah. This is Joss again, talking about the unofficial hour ride she did late one night in Manchester Velodrome as part of her preparation for the full attempt. Um, and just about squeaked ahead of the record you were trying to beat. I did, but point. with a much better ride than actually the real record attempt. It really wasn't just mm, in terms so, of the, phys- the physical effort. Yeah, better like yeah, better power, uh, like better CDA. In fact, despite having better equipment, my position was just better when I did it the first time around. But I was so well prepped for it the first time, and I was I yeah done not lots of track riding, but lots and lots of work on the turbo, lots of long sustained efforts, and um, and yeah, actually to be fair, that did that the last. It was the last 22 minutes, actually, when I was like, whoa, <laughs> oh, oh dear, <laughs> which was, um, yeah, so yeah, that was that was a harder one, and I did a better ride, um, but because the conditions were so bad, really, when I did it then, when I was a lot, yeah, a lot slower. Was that, was, was that in Grenchen as well, in, in Switzerland? It was in Manchester. In oh, was winter. that in Manchester? Yeah. Okay, in winter, so it's presumably 12 degrees for a start. We got the track quite similar. hot, actually, so okay. we, we did get the track hot because it was to, yeah, I suppose, counteract the fact that the air pressure was not good for it at all. Um, that was actually the main thing, it was just the pressure, really. Um, so what, what did you, what, if anything, then, did you change between... Because it's interesting that like, there's nearly a, what is it, nearly a 400 meter, 300, me, 300 and something meter difference between the rides. Mm. Um, and you went further, obviously, the second time. I mean, did you, what did you learn from the first one? What did you, did you yeah. change anything for the, for the actual record ride? So, we, yeah, so some things in terms of the equipment. I mean, for the, the first effort, I was actually covered in sensors. So I had um, like what's called a Leomo, these little sensors on my feet and my... Oh, it's a motion tracking Motion system, tracking, yeah. yeah, exactly, because we wanted to look at like pedal stroke, um, sort of hip rotation movements. Um, these uh, EMG, I think it's called, um, sensors on my quads and my glutes to look at how the muscles are firing. Uh, obviously, like the no-show on the front, to look at uh, CDA. Um, what else do I have? Uh, maybe that was it. But yeah, so I was sort of, yeah, covered in sensors, but... Uh, yeah, position was good. Pacing was really good. I think what I learned was I learned how to do it. And I know that sounds really silly because I got it right. 
but then it was a case of going okay well you did all of this before so try and do it as best as you can for the second time but bearing in mind that you're going to race the world championships the week before and do three events so it's not quite the, the same prep um but then in terms of equipment i ran yeah different wheels so i had fast forward wheels for the real attempt um i had a different skin suit so red mclaren um edition for Nicole's skin suit second time round uh different cranks perhaps um different chain the zoomy car but but in in some respects well with the possible exception of the skin suit nothing terribly profound um just look yeah little bits and pieces but yeah details. like yeah look, but like i say like um so yeah my equipment was better but the and actually even though i wasn't covered in sensors my my cda was slightly was slightly better when I did it before, but it was mostly the conditions that enabled me to go further. But, and actually the conditions that I did it in in Gretchen weren't actually that great. I think if I'd done it, so I did it on the Thursday, if I'd done it on the Monday, I think it, we worked out it was going to be about four or maybe even five or even 600 meters further. It's huge. Like the that's, next day yeah. when Dan did his, it was sort of 200 meters further than, so it's like, that, and that's just. Yeah, lucky, lucky old Dan. I know he got that. He got it. <laughs> Joss's partner is Dan Bigham, who you might remember from the last season of this podcast. He's an engineer and an aerodynamicist and an international bike rider, now working for Ineos Grenadiers, and he's very well known for an analytical approach to bike riding. Dan set his British mark the day after Joss broke the world record at the same track, but using a much more radical pacing strategy than any previous attemptee. I think he did the second fastest time ever, though, and that and sea level as well, which is quite cool. Yeah. yeah. No, I I believe I'm 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 no one's a bigger fan of that. I mean, clearly I was involved with Alex's attempt to break that record, but you know, it was so. Do you know, it was it, so. It would, have, it would have suited us very well if that record hadn't existed, because then Alex, of course, would have got the British record. Yeah. But yeah, there we it are. That's really the way these things fall out. Watching Alex's, both Dan and I shared the same sentiments because we really like Alex. You really want him to do really well, like not just on a you know personal level, but for the causes and stuff that he was doing. And because it's nice to see people do well and to succeed. But you can't help this kind of like little niggle of like, oh, but don't break Dan's record. But I think actually, actually, I yeah, you just want to see someone succeed. Like, and I think that's what I like. And then and then the bar is higher, and then it just it makes the sport progress. So yeah, we did we did want him to do it. <laughs> I mean, I was um, party to his plan, so I was uh, pretty chilled out. If anything, I was actually when he was doing it, I was almost worried that he was too far ahead. Of what was behind. So to kind of explain this, you kind of did what most people do, which is ride record pace-ish. Yeah. I, and then build as you went through it. Yeah, start at record pace uh, for the first eight to ten minutes and then slightly lift it, lift it, lift it and hold it was what I did, which was, um, so I think if you were to draw a curve of me against the record pace, I'm pretty much constantly throughout building on the pace obviously there's my screen they're building on the pace and then sort of flattening off and be just becoming parallel to it and so i stop him increasing it i guess um which is a very controlled very sensible very non-hollywood way to raid ride an it's, hour <laughs> it's the classical way to do it it's what victor did yeah. um it's what alex was aiming for it doesn't it doesn't build any drama or suspense though because from very soon that you're ahead and then you're just sort of ahead, ahead, ahead. And it's always quite controlled and safe. And you always kind of feel quite confident that it's going to be in the bag. 
Well, obviously not. I will not vote for Alex. It can, it can go wrong. It can go wrong. I don't think there's any such thing as an R record that's not vulnerable to suddenly Yeah, exploding. I mean, that was, I think, why I stopped building because in my last 10 minutes, like, I thought, okay, I could push on here, but I actually also am quite worried that I might throw up on the track. I might, um, like, just wobble and fall off. And you kind of just think, like, just hold this together. You don't have to do anything completely well. Just hold it together. Um, whereas Dan's was much more like a an upside-down U in terms of pacing. I, and if you're kind of imagining that, that the top of the U is how far behind he is of the record. So he goes out and he goes further and further behind, 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 up to halfway. And then starts to because it was it something like two laps down. It's only like two laps down at halfway. It, was, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't marginal. It wasn't four or five seconds. It was a whole heap. It was about. Uh, it could have been about twenty-five seconds. So yeah, that is two laps, isn't it? Well, nearly two laps. I think his his plan was to be so two laps would be about what thirty-two seconds or something. So his plan was to be that far down at halfway and so everyone was going oh my god he's really far back down and i was like he's not far down enough this 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 big and bloke's really rubbish what's he doing what jokes um and then picked it up at unbelievable uh rate so yeah so then and then managed to, yeah, to pick it up and then and then to to go ahead of it so it was it was pretty cool um to watch but a very different approach and much more nerve-wracking and a lot more suspense it just it it interested me that the two of you did it so differently, considering you were kind of working from the same, yeah. the same bases. Because it's clearly it's it's physiological. I mean, I think but, I think Dan always always seemed to me as a rider who's actually quite punchy. I mean, he's a time trialist as a specialism, mm-hmm. but actually he's quite good on courses that have a bit more, a bit less, a bit more, a bit less. Give go, you know, push pull. Yeah, I think and maybe you're just a bit more. I think I don't know really. It's hard because I always say that in like when I'm training, all my efforts. Are- always always progressive to the extent that i seem to not be able to not do a progressive effort i always always want to build and then to be able to find like my best 20 minute efforts are always within 30 minute efforts my best sort of 10 are always within 15 or something so i i would have thought that that would have suited me physiologically but um like uh definitely Mentally, I wouldn't have been able to cope with going behind like that. I think that takes quite a lot of nerve. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So far, we've mostly been talking about successful rides. But I'd also have to say that there's almost nothing in cycling that can go as badly wrong as an R. Here's Molly on coping with an unsuccessful attempt and the mistakes that you can make. Well, of course, I mean, there's the thrill of having succeeded, regardless of how physically difficult it was. But yes, uh, um, an unsuccessful attempt, whatever's making it unsuccessful often also makes it very painful. And I mean, it takes a lot of, I think, psychological wherewithal to finish an attempt if it's not going as you'd hoped. 
The number one mistake that you can make is the same in both cases, and that is going out too fast because it feels easy at the beginning. I remember learning from your book, which I loved. I think it sort of set a pacing schedule that said, if it doesn't feel easy in the first 10 minutes, you're really doing it wrong because it's gonna be impossible then for the last 10 minutes. And that is certainly my experience. Um, but there are some huge differences. And I would say that the number one difference for me is how much information you get during an hour record that you don't get during a time trial on the road, knowing your lap, I, I focus mainly on just my lap time and have a goal lap time and to get that every lap and to know to the 10th of a second. I, I mean, I should say the timing can be inexact if it's hand timing per lap. So you don't wanna put too much weight in the exact 10th of a second information that you're getting, but, um, but still it's a ton of information. And also of course, you're getting information about how fast you're going relative to your competition, which is your, you know, your schedule and the existing record. And uh, so that's, I dream of having that kind of information in a real time trial. It's interesting. I've now, like so many people over the last uh, year and a half, gotten really into Zwift, which has, time trialing in Zwift has a lot in common with the hour record in that you can often see the other people on the road, what their watts per kilo are. And, um, and so I, that real-time feedback is, it almost feels like cheating, honestly, compared to what you have to do mentally to figure out how fast to go in a regular time trial. So we've looked at the who and the why and the how and even the how not of the R record. What we've barely touched on is the where and the where very much matters. All tracks are different. Some are faster than others, depending on the geometry of the track, the surface, and even the building that it's in. But the biggest issue is altitude. The air is thinner at altitude, so there's less drag. But the air is thinner at altitude, so there's also less oxygen. On balance, Higher altitude is generally accepted as providing an advantage, but it's very individual to each athlete, to their physiology and to their preparation. The altitude issue has also produced something of a bifurcation in the record. A lot of people see sea level and altitude records as being not completely compatible with each other. Do you think going and doing it at altitude was the right decision? No, I would never do it again. Okay. If I, Where would because you go? I'm 100% sure I could have done it on sea level also, and um, still people see Wigo as the hour record holder because he did it on sea level. Yeah. So you don't actually think you gained all that much by going to altitude? I do think it, it might have been possible that I didn't break the 50, 55k mark on sea level. But still, I would prefer, um, let's say, when Ghana has a go in Manchester, they, they will say... Um, he broke it uh, with such a margin and even Campanart was on altitude. (laughs) (laughs) Grenchen, where you did your R record, was that, did you kind of appraise every track in the world for atmospheric conditions and track geometry and the size and shape of the building or was that a much more direct where can we go that straightforward question i think probably um all of those points you mentioned probably answered them themselves already because like grinchen is a fast track 
So all of those elements contribute to it being fast track. Um, we were kind of a bit torn between, not torn, but we had the sort of decision to make between Grenchen and Odens, Odens in Denmark, which is also a pretty good track. And the people that, uh, the guys out there that, um, that run it, really nice. Um, we know them. So it was sort of between the two. But um, yeah, yeah, the the team at Grenchen, it's, it's easier to organize an official hour world record uh, in Grenchen because it's the home of TSO timing. So logistically, it's... Um, it's sort of the best place to organize it. And then the team there were just, they're so nice, so, so helpful, so accommodating, so welcoming, everything really, which made, um, which made, yeah, made the logistics easy. And then it's, you know, helps as well. The fact that it, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a fast track. It's at 450 meters. So it's sea level, but it's good conditions. So. Yeah. Kind of, you look at it and think, well, if what, what you're doing there is sort of it's like guaranteeing yourself a good Manchester day. Yeah, exactly. A bad day, which is probably not far off actually what I did sort of have, but a bad day is still a very, very good day anywhere else. Yeah, because, I mean, I think Manchester, good good, good air density in Manchester is about 1.15, which is realistic, but not guaranteed. A typical air density might be 1.22. I think I think Grenchen is probably more like 1.15, 1.13 habitually. That's just sort of what it is. So it's kind of... For the most part, it's a good it's a it's a good sea level day, um, and maybe that's the and the way the physio, the way the physiology falls off in terms of how much power you get out. It it's kind of it's exponential. So at four hundred meters, it's practically nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. So there's so not that big compromise. We're not going to really lose anything, and we could be pretty confident that whatever the day, we would have conditions that would be good enough to break the record. Because that's that's it. It's kind of going what is the worst case scenario if if this is this and this is this then what will you do um and oh it's quite it is quite an interesting one because it does take out the element of um surprise and um the element of um sort of suspense from it when you can predict it like so so much but um i guess that's almost like why i quite like it because um you know that all you have to do is do what you know that you are capable of doing and given all the other inputs x y x y z whatever like you know that you're going to get that output most our record riders come from the road side of the sport the specialist nature of the record means that usually this means taking time away from the normal race program in some cases it's several months but what do they take from the r record that they can use back in their normal racing lives Here's Ellen again. Yeah, hopefully I can take some of this position that I had now uh, towards the road. Also, although I know it's much more difficult because you need to look ahead. Um, but hopefully I can I can get some of that. And uh, yeah, just riding this time trial position for so long, I think that really helps to be familiar with your bike and, and to, to put the power out. But still, I think in a, in a road time trial, you need higher powers, like you need higher accelerations. And, and yeah, you have some time to recover in between, which was not the case in this hour. So... It's still a complete different discipline, but uh, yeah, I think you always learn from stuff and for sure to have this experience, it's uh, for me, it's, uh, it's worth everything. I still do a lot of heat training um, because that was, I was also surprised that you guys, I don't know what the temperature was at that point in, in Mexico at that time of the year, but it's quite close to the equator. So I expect it to be quite similar all, all year. But was it, it, it over? Was about, it, was about, it, was, it was about twenty-four degrees. At twenty-four. Uh, okay. So it's not not super hot, but you but you did you did more heat you did a lot of heat conditioning, did you? 
because we moved the hour uh, was planned, I think, at three or four in the afternoon. And we moved it to 11 o'clock um, uh, before noon um, because uh, because it was just too hot in the afternoon. It was then if we would do it at, uh, at four o'clock, it was already, um, I think, 33 degrees. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it wasn't that hot. Did, did, is that, do you think, does heat conditioning, is that help you just with hot races or do you think that there's a benefit from heat conditioning that you see in you know, races at more normal temperatures? I'm convinced it, it uh, helps in any kind of racing just by increasing your blood plasma, um, just by increasing the, the amount of blood you have in your, in your body. Um, yeah not to aim for a high hematocrit, but to aim for a lot of red blood cells combined with a lot of plasma. Well, the, the heat training that I did this year, I think was probably the most interesting bit of training that I did that I could really see the benefits of more than altitude. So do you think that applies to riding in normal temperatures as well? Is that just another training stimulus, another stress, or is that just, do you think that benefits just for, for racing in the heat? No, I think that there's, there's different ways to do it. Much like altitude, you can, you sort of, are you doing it to adapt or are you doing it for the stimulus? And um, I think obviously, yeah, by doing it, I, I think, yeah. So I did it before I went out to Japan um, and it was good. Um, yeah. Ad, ad, adaptation. So it felt like I wasn't such a shock when you're in the heat. But I think that you get a really good training stimulus, and the studies have certainly shown that there's a um, you get you can get a good response in terms of like increased hemoglobin from doing heat training, and, and it's not actually that complex, and it's not really that difficult to do and build into your schedule. It doesn't take. Well, well, how are you? Do how are you heat training? It doesn't. It doesn't have to take a huge amount of time. No, it doesn't. So I would suggest to anybody sort of looking to do it, like maybe two blocks two sessions a week say of 50 minutes to an hour um and it's low intensity in terms of power um so i was doing i mean this is i am not a physiologist this is what i did based on the studies i read so but um it was the case of like so sit about 140 150 um like heart rate bpm and over the case of 50 to uh, over the case of an hour your power drops off but you try and keep your heart rate pretty constant in the heat so I wasn't doing anything in, intense at all, um, but just sitting there real, real hot <laughs> and then sort of trying to keep that stimulus going for as long as you, you can really afterwards. So I would get off after an hour and then sort of have a stretch in the heat, um, just kind of sit there for a bit, almost in a, like, like a sauna. Um, when Dan was do it, doing it, he would go and sort of have a hot shower and then put on clothes, but I couldn't and to kind of keep that stimulus going a bit longer, but I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I was like, once I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> the R still has the reputation for being a horror show, but we've seen silver riders make multiple attempts. Some of them, like Molly, edging towards double figures, and other riders who've done the full 60 minutes just as a training ride. So what is the learning curve from attempt to attempt? And what would they do differently next time? I would ride with a lot bigger gear. I was too um, focused on, first of all, the test um, I did in Grenchen. I, uh, I had a cadence of 104, I think. Um, and then also Rigo averaged 106 in his record. So in my, for some kind of reason, I thought, and also, you know, when you do short intervals on the tracks, 
track, it feels really, really good to have a high cadence. Yes. Uh, yeah. for, so for some reason in my head, I thought I need to have a higher cadence than in my normal time trials. Um, but every every longer testing session we did, we went one gear up, one gear up, one yeah. gear up. Like only uh, one one teeth in the front, you know, one tooth in the front ring. Um, but uh, I, I would, if I do it over again, I would aim for for the cadence of, of ninety something like that. Right. Are you going to do it again? No, no. I have it now. <laughs> and the next one I think that will go for it is Ghana, um, and then uh, then it's. Uh, it, I don't think it would be in any kind of way uh, necessary to try and go for it again. I think because for me everything was new now, I think it will the, the preparation will be different in a way that I would focus a bit more on, on the physical side instead of only the technique side, which was basically what I did for the last four weeks. Um, yeah, and hopefully that, that uh, could bring me uh, a little extra. So, that's the R record, the modern R record. It is perhaps a bit less heroic and a bit more analytical than the records of Copy or Merckx. But it's like I said at the start. The R is more than a distance. It's a record of how cycling has changed and how it's changed and why it's changed. It is still very much an event on its own. Now, I think more so than ever, the preparation is so specific and the margins have become so fine. And despite the rush of the last few years, there are still so few people who've lined up against history. Every attempt on the record is special. It's for all those reasons, and for all the reasons we've heard from the riders who've held it, that make it a very special event. And the chances are it always will be. My thanks to Victor, Molly, Joss, Alex and Alan for talking to me for this podcast. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to Cycling Weekly for supporting the show. just heard a stripped media production.